This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Today on This Is Hell, we have this idea, hold this myth that somehow capitalism, markets, and the pursuit of profit brought about a better world free of the enchantments of the past. No shamanic rituals, no witchcraft, no interference from the divine, the spiritual no longer dominating what was the real world. In capitalism, there was the logic of economics to guide decision-making, efficiently distribute goods, and give us the great achievements in arts and culture and science that it has. We'd finally moved beyond what was predominantly a faith-based reality to one with a strong foundation in realism that could bring about what was determined to be true progress. But what if economics is as faith-based as any religion? In fact, Naomi Klein has described today's capitalist economics as the contemporary religion of unfettered free markets. Economics is the scripture of what our guest today calls the religion of mammonism, the attribution of ontological power to money, the metaphysical understanding of our nature of being within the context of currency and of existential sublimity to its possessors. We'll find out how money has been raised to the exalted level of any religious faith when we speak in a few to historian Eugene McCarraher, author of The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Eugene is Associate Professor of Humanities at Villanova University, where he is an Anne Quinn Welsh Fellow. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. This is hell completely. Listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us with our horrible, horrible business model, you can by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise, including the new This Is Hell medical face mask to protect you from the virus or tear gas or mace or whatever new level of punishment capitalism has for us. In fact, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will win a This Is Hell medical face mask, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have a question from hell for our listeners? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell is, what are you bringing to the autonomous autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Isn't that where uh, they have that tent and they serve tacos over on Tui? Yeah. Speaking of uh, the AutoZone parking lot. Oh, AutoZone. Sorry. So. Uh, I, you know, I told you yesterday that the dollar store is uh, now a 50 cent store because everything is half off uh, <laughs> yeah. right near Devon. Yeah. Uh, the taco place that I always go to, Dos Amigos Tacos. Mm-hmm. Uh, since they came back from coronavirus uh, lockdown, there's only one amigo. There's <laughs> only one guy working there now. There used to be two. So it's un I'm amigo? Scared, I'm scared to ask what happened to the other amigo. <laughs> Taco is still good, but uh, I'm kind of worried about that other amigo. I went to a thrift store one time. I think it was called the Chicago Thrift Store down on Halstead and, geez, Roosevelt maybe, somewhere down there in the UIC neighborhood. North of Roosevelt, actually. And uh, we went down there because they had a half-off sale on all furniture. When we went inside, what we found was, like it would say, $100. And they'd taken the one and turned it into a two. So what they did is they just went and doubled all their prices. And that's why everything was half-off. One of the most amazing sales I've ever been a part of in my life. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. Which is, again, what was it, Alex? 
Reminder. What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week, following Jeff Dorchin and his delivery of The Moment of Truth. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer or post them on Facebook or DM them to us via Twitter. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. You can email us, like I was saying, to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, and send us a message via Facebook. You can DM us via Twitter. And you can give us any of your thoughts or suggestions or comments on the show, and we'll likely read them on the air, which is what we're going to do right now. Mika wrote us a couple weeks ago asking, Hey, do either of you recall the guest who argued that violence, or at least the threat of it in protests and social movements, has not only been effective and necessary, but that it has been the only effective means by which serious change has ever been achieved in the United States? I'm losing track of time these days, but I think it wasn't too long ago. Probably the last three months, maybe six. It was a guy? I'm 99% sure it was a guy. Maybe the guy that was talking about John Brown? Thanks. I have a friend that just will not shut up about violence being counterproductive. So I could not remember, which was really embarrassing, because it's somebody who I'd been back and forth with in email for weeks following the interview so uh, but i couldn't remember who it was for whatever reason alex did remember it was kelly carter jackson who was on last year to talk about her book force and freedom black abolitionists and the politics of violence people like to think that it was non-violent abolitionists who convinced the u.s through passionate logic to end slavery but it was actually the, the many very violent uprisings that turned the page on slavery it was people like John Brown that made the difference. So Alex mentioned it was probably Kelly Carter Jackson that Mika was talking about. Mika heard Alex and replies, yep, Kelly Carter Jackson. I thought the interview happened in 2018, so I was off by one year, the current one, and three months and one gender, but otherwise I was all over it. Thanks. And Alex, it's Mika, not Micah. And if you're looking for an appropriate book to be reading during the current uprising, check out Kelly Carter Jackson's Force and Freedom Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, which we named as one of our very favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. And it's a really great interview. Just go look up Kelly, K-E-L-L-I-E at our website because we've had a lot of people on the show named Jackson. So just look up Kelly, K-E-L-L-I-E, and listen to that interview and then get that book. It is a really, really appropriate book to be reading at this moment in history. Stephen sent an email with the subject line, F Patreon. Stephen writes, just want to apologize for my Patreon subscription getting suspiciously canceled by Patreon. I noticed I wasn't getting the new podcast from the supporter feed, and now I know why. Patreon is a deep state psyop that is trying to prevent the spreading of any leftist media and is also gathering the addresses of leftists to eventually round us up and put us in camps. That, or it could be that when I moved recently, I forgot to update my billing address on on Patreon and my credit card was getting declined. But who's to know? Love the show. 
and love you and Alex. Stay safe and stay dangerous, Stephen. For Stephen, nobody is supposed to know Patreon is a deep state psyop that is trying to prevent the spreading of any leftist media and is also gathering the addresses of leftists to eventually round us up and put us in camps. So keep that quiet. Second, all Patreon patrons need to stay on top of their billing information if they want to keep getting the exclusive Friday podcast. But again, Stephen, we'd appreciate it if you kept that Patreon as a deep state psyop information to yourself. And remember, Stephen, they know where you live. Thanks to all of you who sent emails over the weekend about concerns over my intense stomach pain that kept me from doing a few shows over the last couple of months and for those of you who have been listening for a while you know it's about an on it's been an ongoing obstacle to doing the show for me for about 12 years now Giddon writes I missed answering last week's question from hell about how to fix your aching stomach however I might have some suggestions and be able to send you some Chinese herbal formulas for your stomach pain I'm an acupuncturist I wonder if you can do that via mail or zoom I'm an acupuncturist and think it is highly effective for most pain. I recommend getting some when you are able to able to again. If you would like an herbal consultation, I'd be happy to give you one or as many as you would need to to get before you get yourself better. I'm not too sure what he means by an herbal consultation, though. I like that term. Love what you do, Giddon. Giddon or anybody, if you want to send me any kind of herbal formula or give me any kind of herbal consultation or any suspected cure for the painful spasms of diverticulitis, do it, do it now. Send me whatever you got to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. You can find that mailing address at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on contact, that's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you are sending powerful herbal formulas, make certain to pack a little coffee in them throw off the police dogs. George was also concerned about my debilitating gut ailments. Writing, hi Chuck, this helped when I had food poisoning and I still take two capsules a day to decrease sinus allergies. George then includes a link to something called Gastro Health Concentrate, which the website says contains ingredients that have been shown to inhibit the growth and adhesion of unfavorable organisms in the GI tract, which sounds gross. George explains, it's organic green cabbage, juiced, and it could help. A quarter cup a day for a few weeks. If the taste is too too strong, mix with warm or hot water. Good luck, George. Green cabbage juice. Sounds awful, but at this point, I am willing to try anything, and my girlfriend will be researching all of our listeners' suggestions over the next weekend because she's tired of hearing me complaining and waiting on me hand and foot while I lay on the couch watching TV and doing mad rips. Finally, Tucker had his own advice for what I need to do about my gulliva. Tucker writes, Hey Chuck, sorry you're feeling poorly. I'm not trained and barely read in herbalistic medicine, so let's definitely listen to Tucker, but I've been enjoying the mixture of Ocotillo and Silk tassel tinctures from the link below silk tassel <laughs> very fancy silk tassel like to have a little bit of saffron sprinkle on top of that tucker offers a link to a website that sells the tincture and it states it is a wonderful lymphatic remedy specific to the pelvic area 
It, its uses include to cure a sore throat, acute or chronic infections, dysmenorrhea, which is painful menstruation, which that might be something I have because it is really painful, pelvic inflammatory disease, feelings of congestion in the pelvic region. Ocotillo is uniquely applied as an emotional heart remedy, i.e. for a broken or wounded heart. Although I do not have a broken heart over my diverticulitis, at least I don't think I do, but now that I think about it a little bit longer, and Tucker made me consider it, yeah, my heart's been broken by my inflamed intestine. Tucker continues, I live in the same town as Monsanto, Pioneer, Syngenta, and we have pesticide spraying so badly that my country friend tells me about weird chemical stuff coming up out of the ground when it rains. Jesus, as long as it doesn't talk to you in English, I'm pretty sure you're at least relatively okay. Tucker writes, anyway, I guess glyphosate and other things eat away at gut and intestinal linings, likely causing all kinds of damage to all of us, prevents proteins from being absorbed that are important for memory and thought collection. You've likely heard all of this, but I don't know how well studied the gut's proton pump system is. Tucker then sends a link to an article with a riveting title, The Gastric and Intestinal Microbiome, Role of Proton Pump Inhibitors, which I think is the next Harrison Ford vehicle. Tucker, Tucker adds, my grandma is having similar acidity to the point of it bubbling up and eating away at her esophagus. She's been given the prescription of proton pump inhibitors. Not sure if in, inhibiting it is really what should be done. I have no idea, Tucker, but thanks for putting the thought of acid percolating up from my stomach and eating away at my esophagus because that can be deadly. Tucker concludes, from one simpleton to presumably another, the Ocotillo silk tassel mix seems to have given me some effect in my pelvic region, seems to work well with deep breathing exercise, exercises by Vim Hoff, but I'm just wandering through it, keeping dosage low so I have less chance of poisoning myself, whatever. Peace, play, joy, love, and equanimity. Tucker. Great, now i got to look up... Deep Breathing Exercises by Wim Hof, which is a name that sounds a lot like a Dutch national football team star from the 1970s. Tucker and everyone who's sent such thoughtful suggestions on how to fix my troubled guts, I truly appreciate it, and I will probably be trying everything you suggest suggested because I, I'll literally do anything at this point to end this nagging problem that keeps interfering with me doing the show. I just don't want to get that surgery because it's disgusting and there's a global pandemic on, so for whatever reason, I don't feel like having complicated surgery at a healthcare facility at this moment in history. That's some of what you have been writing to us, sending to us via email, messaging us via Facebook, DMing us via Twitter, and if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to hear us, hear us discuss on the show, story tips, constructive or destructive criticism, or would like to give your advice and what I should do about my health, you can email me or email us, message us or DM us, and we'll likely read your email. On the air, coming up, capitalism is the new witchcraft. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you bringing to the autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This 
is hell with capitalism and the pursuit of profits. We disavowed our enchanted past of divinities and connection to the spiritual world in exchange for one commodified into a market. But what if capitalism and its money are just as much witchcraft as any practice preceding the market? Here to explain, historian Eugene McCarraher is author of The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eugene. Good morning, Chuck. I'm happy to be here. Eugene is Associate Professor of Humanities at Villanova University, where he is an Anne Quinn Welsh Fellow. He's also the author of Christian Critics, Religion and the Impasse in Modern American Social Thought. Eugene's work on this book was supported by fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Council of Learned Societies. You write that once upon a time, the world was enchanted, rocks, trees, rivers, and rain pulsated with invisible forces, powers that enlivened and determined the affairs of tribes and empires as well. Though beholden to the caprice of or providential design of a variety of spirits and deities, the world of enchantment could be commanded by magic or humbly beseeched through prayer. But with the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and industrial capitalism in Europe, the company of spirits was evicted from the cosmos. What changed to go from enchantment to power? Were we, was there simply too many people or too few resources or a combination of both? Was, this, was profit a necessary and inevitable uh, escape from some kind of misery that was imposed during the world of enchantment? Well, Chuck, the story that you just uh, outlined is uh, has been entitled the, Dis- the disenchantment of the world. Uh, it's a term that Max Weber uh, used, and it's it's still one of the most fundamental assumptions of modern cultural and intellectual life. And what I think uh, changed, or at least what began the change, was in many ways the Protestant Reformation and specifically uh, Calvinist theology. Uh, in Calvinist theology, you lose you begin to lose at least. Uh, this enchanted or what I'm sometimes calling the book, the sacramental perspective, right? This idea that um, matter can, uh, that matter can mediate the presence of God in the world. And also what I think is, what is also essential to this enchanted worldview is the idea that our, our desires and our morality are in fact embedded in the ontological framework of the, of the universe, right? That our, our, that our highest values aren't simply subjective that they're, they're actually part of the architecture of the cosmos. And I think what Calvinist theology does is it doesn't so much cause capitalism, uh, that's, that's preposterous, but what it does is it clears a certain kind of space um, for money and pecuniary reasons to basically take the place of God as the arbiter of what is good and true and beautiful in the world. Uh, so, I, so this is one of the basic reasons why I think that this disenchantment narrative doesn't work, because what I think is actually going on is the creation of a surrogate form of divinity. Uh, it's not the abolition of divinity. It's a, it's a kind of a, a repression and a displacement and a renaming uh, of divinity and of our desire for it. Uh, so what happens with, with, with enchantment in that traditional sense is, it's usually either something that's considered to be um, destroyed by science or it languishes in the face of uh, technology, or it finds a refuge in our privatized religious cultures uh, in liberal democracies. And, and the reason I think that this, this narrative is able to work is that it, it does 
seem to comport with so much of our daily experience, right? I mean, businesses don't make decisions based on horoscopes. Uh, people don't hire workers or buy new equipment based on what they, you know, uh, saw in an aberration of the Virgin Mary or something like this. But I think that uh, money in, has, in fact, over the last four or five centuries, really come to define not just our ethics, but our very standard of, what re, of what's real. Uh, and it reaches its, uh, <laughs> I was going to say its pinnacle, it's actually its nadir at the lowest point in, uh, in neoliberalism. You write that nothing seems more thoroughly secular than the modern business corporation, the Leviathan of the 21st century, and the preeminent institution of our Gilded Age. To its admirers, the corporation is the servant of a democratic market, an unfairly maligned and underappreciated creator of abundant commodified marvels. To its detractors, it is a remorseless gargantua, despoiling the planet, an insatiable globe-encircling syndicate relying on mendacity and exploitation. Yet both admirers and detractors of the corporation agree on its thorough disenchantment. So why is the thoroughly secular world? Because you write that they must organize every factor of production from fiber optic cables and human resources to the dreams of the ad department and calibrate the marginal utility of every expenditure, exertion, and longing. No beatitudes here, no works of mercy, no yearning for paradise. Why is the thoroughly secular so potentially relative to the previous age of enchantment, if you will, merciless well it has to be um i because they've set up as i said a surrogate divinity um what i'm calling mammon here uh is is probably the most unforgiving divinity ever because money is the standard as i said not simply of what is good in capitalist civilization but what is real what's imaginable and, um, you know, money never sleeps. Money takes no prisoners. Uh, money leaves the weak behind. And so there is a kind of morality uh, in capitalism, but it is an utterly cruel and ruthless and avaricious one. And so, yeah, there can't be any mercy in a, in a capitalist system. And, and, the, and what mercy you do see, uh, I think, is the residue of, you know, waning or still extant uh, religious cultures. Capitalism itself is, I think, utterly, as I said, cruel and rapacious. It, it can't possibly be merciful. So is money at odds with religion? Is that uh, confrontation over? Is it ongoing? Is enchantment and profit in conflict then, now, and forever? Oh, I think, it, yes. I think it always has been and always will be. Uh, because and, and because I think money is, as I said, a kind of surrogate divinity. I mean, this is a this is an idea that uh, you see certainly in antiquity. Uh, I trace it through the Middle Ages, and you even see it in in someone who was self conscious self consciously secular, as Karl Marx, uh, who openly refers to money as the god among commodities. Uh, he talks about the divinity of money in, in several of his uh, writings, especially his youthful writings, but also in in Capital. Uh, he, he talks about money possessing these divine godlike qualities. So I, I do think that money is money is not secular. And, um, you know, much later in the book from, by uh, the psychoanalyst Norman O. Brown, who draws on a lot of psychoanalytical and anthropological and historical literature to make the point that money is not in fact secular. It, it in fact originates in the realm of the sacred. 
So I, that's why I, I would reject the idea that money is is secular. Uh, I think it actually has powerful religious qualities. What? Why do we need not what? Why do we need to be enchanted seemingly? Whether it's by religion, by the enchanted of the pre-capital world, or by profit, why do we need to be enchanted? What explains that desire to you? Well, I guess I should just put my religious cards on the table here. I mean, as a as a Christian, I think that uh, enchantment or, you know, for me, a, a desire for the sacramental, a desire to somehow experience the divine in the everyday is just part of our human nature. Uh, I think that's the way we're made. And so since I think that a, a desire for the sacramental, a desire for, for divinity is, is part of our part of our nature, um, we're going to be enchanted by something. I mean, it, it seems to me we're going to, we're going to have that sort of a longing fulfilled by something. And so it seems to me that the longing for enchantment in capitalist civilization is fulfilled, or I guess I should say misfulfilled by money, uh, which again, sets itself up as, uh, or is set up as an arbiter of what's good and true and beautiful. It's, I, I, I sometimes use in the book the term misenchantment to characterize uh, capitalist civilization. Is there any way that we cannot be followers of mammonism? Is it possible for us to live outside of mammonism? Because when I was reading your book, I started thinking about how right. people who might think that they are atheists, that they do not believe in any religion, but in a way we mm -hmm. are all complicit and compliant, just as we are within racism or capitalism. We're all complicit yeah. and compliant within mammonism. So are we all believers of a religion, whether we recognize it or not? Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I think even people such as myself, uh, as long as we're trapped, you know, in a capitalist civilization, uh, we are going to be to some degree devotees. Uh, we're going to be forced to be acolytes uh, of this uh, religion of mammonism. Now, we can be more or less conscious of this. Uh, and to that extent, I suppose one could say, you could become disenchanted by mammon or with mammon. Uh, but I think that as long as you have a capitalist system, all of us are going to be enslaved to it in some way. Uh, and, and the point is to try to resist and transform that system, knowing that you're still yoked to it uh, to some degree. So I know I, I would say that even people who would consider themselves atheists um, are in fact, as you said, complicit. As, 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 and what they should, all of us should join to, to try to overcome and transcend the system. It would seem that mammonism is very much contradicted in all of the world's major religions. Has profit commodified mm -hmm. religion? And if so, what happens to religion when it is commodified? How does our relationship with <laughs> religion, with the enchanted, change? Well, it changes in different ways. Uh, one example, I think a very good one, would be evangelical Protestantism, which Chris Lehman, uh, in his great book, uh, has called uh, the money cult. Uh, evangelical Protestantism is very much a, a great form of uh, Christian enchantment for you know, the, the entrepreneur, for the self-made person. Uh, 
So in many ways, I think evangelical Protestantism uh, basically blesses mammonism. It, it puts its uh, imprimatur on it. Uh, you, lo- you look at, a, especially at a religion such as Mormonism, especially early Mormonism is saturated with pecuniary values. Um, other forms of Christianity, you know, Roman Catholicism, more liberal forms of Protestantism, uh, you know, Judaism, as you say, all of them to some degree have made their accommodations with mammon. I mean, they've essentially, uh, you know, God and mammon have, you know, been forced into a sort of a, a partnership, a very lucrative one, in fact. Um, and so what, what the, the form that this usually takes is, is to either accept the fact that, well, we are sinful people, and so therefore capitalism is the best we can do, you know, therefore acknowledging something about the, the iniquity of the system, or you actually find a way to distort all sorts of New Testament texts to make capitalism not just uh, acceptable, but even somehow divinely ordained. So, there, so I think that uh, certainly organized religion, institutionalized Christianity in particular, has pretty much made its peace with, with mammon, uh, which is why uh, you know, I don't see any of the institutional churches, certainly not its leadership, taking any great uh, leadership in, in fighting the system. I think, once again, this is where the, you know, the laity are going to have to teach the, their, their uh, ecclesiastical leaders how to be Christians again. I thought it, fun, it was pretty funny that you were mentioning the comparison to Mormonism and Mammonism in your writing as well as in your response, because when I was uh, writing up the notes for this interview, uh, my spell check kept changing Mammonism to Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that you would enjoy that. Uh, you write the capitalist Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto. It's like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld. He is called up by his spells. Mm-hmm. Later in the first volume of Capital, Marx included a seminal passage on the fetishism of commodities, the attribution of human or supernatural qualities to manufactured objects. Did profit overcome a world of the supernatural by giving supernatural power to the outcome of profit like manufactured objects? If so, why can't we have that same kind of reverential awe for something that is less intrusive, like the natural world, instead of the enchanted world of profit? Well, I think that we we can, and in some ways we already do. Um, this is why the, to me, the sacramental imagination uh, is is so key to this, because the way I use sacramental is not simply to denote, you know, the rituals of a particular church, but the sacramental imagination or perspective is is one that sees all of material reality itself as being capable of, in some fashion, uh, connecting us to the divine. Uh, in the Middle Ages, of course, you know, the sacramental imagination was defined by the, the Catholic Church. But as I argue in the book, I think in modernity, uh, the, the, the refuge outside of organized religion for the sacramental imagination is what I call Romanticism, capital R Romanticism, which I don't think is simply a literary and artistic movement of the early 19th century. But I think uh, Romanticism is a, is a crucial component of all of modern culture. It, it names an attempt uh, or a sense that there is, in fact, more than the material world, that it conveys something 
uh, to us of the beyond, of the divine. I think you, you see romanticism uh, in a lot of movements in the 19th and 20th century. In fact, I, I think you see a great deal of romanticism in the contemporary ecological uh, movements that have revived since the 1960s. So I think that uh, this enchantment, we are in fact, to some degree enchanted by the natural world. We, we do love it. A lot of us do sense something uh, in the beyond that's conveyed to us through everyday material life. This is why I think that um, one of the most important tasks of our time is in fact to be more materialistic, not less. And what I mean by that is appreciating the, the sensuous and delightful qualities of the material world, which, which I think industrialization and capitalism have done a, a great, to which it's done a great deal of damage by, by turning everything into a commodity and measuring it by this pecuniary ontology and morality. How is that appreciation of the material world different? I want to make sure people understand different from mm -hmm. what people might see as hyper consumerism. Right. Yeah. I, one of the things, one of the points I make in this book is that I, I'm, I'm frankly tired of people talking about consumerism because uh, for a number of reasons, because I think anti-consumerism is just a sort of tiresome, ineffectual form of moralism. It's just another form of finger wagging, right? Don't buy so much. Don't consume so much. Um, and, and to which to which the answer is is just frugality and thrift, which is kind of boring, you know, as, as well as joyless. Um, so I think that talking about consumerism is actually a way of not talking about capitalism, because consumerism, first of all, is a structural necessity of the system. Right. I mean, you want people dissatisfied if you're a capitalist so that they come back for the next hit so that they come back for the next uh, commodified good. And um, so that's one reason that I think talking about consumerism is just utterly boring. The other reason is that I think when you when you want somebody to be, quote, non-materialist or anti-materialist, it kind of flies in the face of reality. Right. I mean, we're material creatures. Uh, we need material things not just to survive, but to express our love and our care for each other. So I think uh, that's why I say that I think we should develop not so much an anti-materialism, but a better materialism, a, a more capacious and uh, uh, loving kind of materialism. Because, look, we, we, as I said, we're material beings, so we shouldn't uh, you know, beat ourselves up for being, quote, materialist. Is the gospel of mammonism a scam? Is it a pyramid scheme? Is that, is that a fair way to describe it? Because I couldn't help but thinking that when I was reading your book. It is, but it's so much more. And that's what makes it so dangerous, right? I mean, if it, if it was only a Ponzi scheme, um, I think we'd have a fairly good way of you know, discerning that it was, and therefore, you know, understanding how to deal with it. But I think that it goes much deeper uh, than that. As I said, I think there's a there's a real moral and ontological disorder here, uh, which, you know, if you follow it out all the way, you know, as we've been trying to do, it seems at least our leaders have been trying to do for the last 40 years, it's going to lead to just ecological and civilizational collapse. Um, so, yeah, when the cards do fall, it's it's going to be horrible, which is why it's so imperative, especially at this time, 
right now to to start thinking anew and start acting anew. So it sounds like Mammonism is the state religion of the United States. The United States says we do not have any state religion, but it does sound like it is the state religion of the United States. Does the, is this current state of Mammonism, is it fundamentalist? Does uh, Mammonism punish heretics and those who will go against it? Oh, sure it does. Um it's uh, well, first of all, it punishes its own believers. Uh, you know, it's called unemployment. It's called your business fails. It calls uh, it, it's called not get, only getting one twelve hundred dollar check when you need so much more to survive. Um, and it and it also, of course, blesses its acolytes and it enriches them. Uh, you know, it hands the keys to the treasury to to them. So, yeah, it's it's it's. Yeah, it is the state religion. <laughs> it's the established faith, and uh, it's it and those who are its its prelates, those who are its theologians, are going to fight tooth and nail to impose this faith uh, on the rest of us. And it's going to be particularly ferocious as that faith is in any way waning or being uh, being shaken by current events. And you point out how secular, secularization is a kind of disguise for enchantment. We are free of yes. the old gods of the enchanted world. We've moved beyond that backwardness. Do we need enchantment but are in denial of enchantment? Is secularization enchantment not only in disguise but in denial of its own enchantment? If so, why does that denial of its own enchantment seemingly work so well? Oh, I think, yes, yeah, secularization is a disguise. Uh, for this new kind of pecuniary enchantment, and uh, it's it's worked so well uh, to you know to cover its tracks because you know as I said earlier, so um, so much of our everyday life seems to comport with this story, right? And I have to point out right that it's a story that that unites you know Wall Street bankers and Silicon Valley tech bros and socialists, uh, whether it's a, you know Jacobin or current affairs. This story, at least the story about secularization. Um, but I think the reason that it survives so well is that, uh, as, as I said, money has been very good at covering its divinity. Uh, it's, it's been very good at draping itself in the, in the raiment of the secular and the disenchanted. You write how you describe how in our incorrigibly and ironic era of postmodernism, the venerable questions of meaning and destiny are sloughed off as unreal and coercive meta narrative. Even revolutionary hope, another grasp at transcendence, yields to the conquest of cool, the imperium of a hip plutocracy. Then you quote critic and literary theorist Terry Eagleton, writing, "The only aura to linger on is that of the commodity." or celebrity. Is this the inevitable destination of mammonism, revolutionary hope falling to the conquest of cool and financialized, made into revenue streams of commodity and celebrity alike? Because I'm wondering if you fear that state religion of mammonism having any impact on the anti-police violence protests that we're seeing today. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think one of the one of the things that's made capitalism so resilient is its ability to turn even resistance to it to a profit 
right? I mean, this is, this is part of the burden of Thomas Frank's great book, The Conquest of Cool, um, in which he shows how really uh, advertisers in the 50s and 60s actually got out ahead of the counterculture uh, in terms of, you know, sensing that there was dissatisfaction with, with the system and then trying to basically turn that dissatisfaction to its own profit. And it, it was ex- extraordinarily successful at doing so. This is why you have so many, you know, disrupt, disruptors and cool figures in advertising and marketing over the last 50 to 60 years. Um, so in a sense, being anti-system only reinforces the system when it's not linked to some kind of a broader radical movement or radical politics. Um, so I think that it's, it's entirely possible uh, for capital to at least attempt to try to co-opt the anti-police uh, violence uh, movement that's, that's been stirring. I mean, you know, all, all of these corporations, you know, of course, have been making these utterly ridiculous statements about how they stand with the protesters, about how they themselves are opposed to police violence. It's just, it, it's just sickening to watch, to watch a lot of these brands do this. But it's part of that attempt uh, that, that capital has to try to make money off of even the most vicious, um, the most vicious incidents, but also trying to make money off of the most idealistic attempts to try to reform or destroy it. And whether, whether it will be successful or not, you know, it depends on us. You write the world does not need to be re-enchanted. That's your argument because it has never mm-hmm. been disenchanted in the first place. Capitalism has been a religion of modernity, one that addresses the same hopes and anxieties formerly entrusted to traditional religion. What hopes and anxieties did enchantment address that you see capitalism addressing today? Because I'm curious, on top of that, if the religion of modernity is and always has been in a kind of religious war. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, this, this has been a conflict of, of enchantments uh, for the last four or 500 years. The hopes, the hopes and anxieties that I think money and capitalism tries, at least tries to address and, and always fails to address are, as I said, our, our longing for divinity, which I think is, is fundamental to our nature. Um, I think we want to live in a world in which we, we love one another, in which we love God, um, and capital and money try to do that for us. Um, they can't. In fact, they will inevitably and, and, and horrifically set us against each other. Uh, but, I, but I think that, it, again, it, what money has successfully done, at least in American civilization, is that it's, it's co-opted uh, religion itself. You know, I, I write in the book that, that the, a lot of American history has essentially been an attempt to try to build a beloved community on the foundation of capitalist property relations. It's a, it's a project that's just doomed from the start. Um, and, and a lot of our history has been, in other words, a failure. What 
kind of spiritual longing do you see inscribed in the imagery of business culture that the observer may not recognize as spiritual? Because so often on our show, we've been talking mm-hmm. with people about whatever the issue is and how it seems unrecognizable to people that they're just un- they just aren't either willing to accept what that means to them or they're unwilling to accept the message that's being sent. So what kind of spiritual longing do you see inscribed in the images of b- business culture mm-hmm. today? Well, in the imagery and the vocabulary of business culture, uh, not you know, not just of today, but I think of the last, uh, especially the last hundred years. Uh, as I said, this longing for beloved community, which which I think is inscribed, in fact, in a lot of management literature. Just to choose one uh, genre, you know, management literature is often uh, depicted as this really boring and and dreadful uh, kind of writing. And a lot of it certainly is, uh, you know, my God, I read enough, you know, to know that. But when you look, for example, at uh, a lot of the most important management theorists, whether it's Frederick Taylor or um, uh, Mary Parker Follett or Peter Drucker, um, what you see, at least what I what I think you, you'll see in management literature is this a, this often very, very self-conscious attempt to provide uh, an ethics and a morality, which will make the workplace not simply, you know, a site where you just do your job, but also a place where you you get along with each other, where you love one another. You know, this this language of love is 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 actually used. This language of communion is you actually see it in a lot of management literature. Um, as far as uh, you know, say advertising imagery, um, it's it's I, it's it's all over the place. Uh, in especially in the in the 20th and, and 21st centuries, um, I'll give you an example. It's uh, I, I actually don't use it in the book, but it's 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 an image that will always stick with me. Uh, I was in the early stages when I was thinking uh, thinking about this book. Uh, one night in the late 90s, I was in my hotel room at the American Historical Association. I was watching the television, and a Microsoft ad came on. And that Microsoft ad did not show any computers. What it showed was an older African-American woman sitting on a bench with her arms uh, out in almost to look like a Hindu goddess. And she was being uh, she was being encircled by a bunch of very playful, joyous children. And all of this was in slow motion. And I thought, you know, what the hell is Microsoft doing? here? <laughs> you know, what what is what is going on here? You know, like I said, you don't see a computer. It's just, you know, and that's, I think, what those are the kinds of images that made me think there is more to advertising than simply selling stuff, right? Advertising is selling you a world. It's it's selling you a sensibility. Um, you know, um, there's, a, there's a sociologist, Michael Shudson, back in the 80s, co- coined this term uh, capitalist realism right, as, as sort of the analog to socialist realism in the 1930s. What, what I think you're seeing is not just capitalist realism, but I think there's, there's a kind of uh, a search for what theologians used to call a beatific vision here. You know, advertising is, is showing you not just the world, but the world as it should be, the world as it ought to be, you as you ought to be. 
I love that idea of advertising as the preaching of the mammonist gospel. That is just spectacular. You write, oh, it's, it's iconography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should start thinking about ads as iconography. Yeah, in the same way where you would be dissecting a piece like Justinian, uh, the great mural of Justinian, and how their feet are placed right. depending on who right. is the leadership, who is the most important person. Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of advertising. You're right. You write, as, eight, as 20th century American Roland de Marchand observed how corporate image professionals attempted to reanimate the corporation itself. Since the late 19th century, when it was first defined as a legal person, the corporation was often figured in popular culture as a soulless leviathan, destructive of the creativity and moral virtue once located, so it was thought, amongst proprietors and local communities. How important is defining a corporation as a legal person to mammonism? Is challenging that power a threat? And how far would mammonism fall, if at all, with the end of defining a corporation as a person? Oh, it's central. Uh, defining a corporation uh, and getting its selfhood is absolutely central to the corporate reconstruction of capitalist enchantment. Um, I mean, there's a long history about, you know, of course, uh, we're thinking about corporate selfhood, right? I mean, you do have notions of, you know, associations of producers as, as being somehow a self. You have this back in the Middle Ages, you know, among medieval guilds, for instance. But what's peculiarly modern uh, about this is uh, the the attribution of selfhood to to a corporation, but in in the fullest possible sense, right? I mean, you know, medieval guilds were no, under no illusions that somehow corporations had uh, you know free speech rights or you know any of this kind of of nonsense. Um, and and it's also essential to point out early on that early on. American business leaders and um, uh, lawyers were very conscious of the fact that the corporation needed to be ensouled, right? I mean, the, we, we sometimes think that this notion of a soulful corporation originates, uh, you know, in the 1990s or 2000s with corporate attempts at, you know, good PR. But you have uh, writers talking about um, corporate selfhood or, or soulful corporations uh, in the 1890s and the and the 1900s, uh, you see it in magazines and public relations efforts. Um, you know, we have to somehow make this what seems like you know, as I said, soulless leviathan. We have to make it basically into your you know, your friendly neighborhood behemoth. And 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 one way to do that is is to say, well, you know, a corporation is a person, but it's a good person, you know, and it's and it's going to do good for you. Um, and if we stripped all those powers and if we stripped that that uh, patina of selfhood away from the corporation, yes, a lot would fall. Or if or if we tried to redefine it uh, in some way. I want to make sure that we touch on your redefining or reexamining of the terms pro, uh, progress and realism. But you also mm-hmm. mention economics, and you write the grotesque ontology of scarcity and money, the tawdry humanism of acquisitiveness and conflict, the reduction of rationality to the mercenary principles of pecuniary reason. This ensemble of falsehoods that comprise the foundation of economics must be resisted and supplanted. Economics must be challenged not only as a sanction for injustice, but also as a specious portrayal of human beings and a fictional account of their history. We always talk about the 
you know, myths of exceptionalism and innocence when it comes mm-hmm. to the U.S. history here on our, our show. How does economics give a mythical, a fictional account of human history? Oh, it's so thoroughly untrue, uh, economics. One, one thing that I always say to students, uh, especially the business students, is that uh, when you take an introductory economics course, the first couple of days, you are actually sitting in philosophy class and you are learning ethics and ontology. You know, they, they never think about it this way. They think, oh, well, I'm, I'm learning economics. Yes, you're learning economics and you're also learning philosophy because first of all, the notion of scarcity is an ontological assertion. You are, you are making a statement there about what you think or the way you think the world is. And what uh, derives from that is, of course, the second postulate, which is that human beings are simply, you know, rational, self-seeking, utility maximizers. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a rational, self-seeking utility maximizer. And, you know, and if and if I ever have, my God, I'd run the other way. I, you know, I, so so I think that both of these assertions are not just, you know, dismal, as Thomas Carlyle, you know, once called economics to dismal science. I just think they're fundamentally untrue. Uh, and, I, and I'd even go so far as to, uh, you know, uh, say that John Ruskin, the great, the great 19th century art critic, art and social critic, was right when he actually compared economics to alchemy and astrology uh, in, in Unto the Last. So I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, economics, if it's going to survive as a discipline, even if it should survive as a discipline, uh, is going to have to thoroughly reconstruct its ontological assumptions and its, uh, its assertions about what human beings are. You point out that rom- romantic social criticism did not claim the imprimatur of science, as did Marxism and other modern mm-hmm. social theories. Yet the romantic lineage of opposition to disenchantment and capitalism has proved to be more resilient and humane than Marxism, progressivism, or social democracy. If that resilience is the case, then why is romanticism not part of the discussion and debate today? Why do we hear so much about Marxism, social democracy, and nobody looking back to romanticism? Right. Well, because, well, I think it's partly because Marxism and social democracy are, you know, basically the best known tools that we have. And I would, you know, I want to make a caveat that I'm not uh, I'm not arguing that Marxism and social democracy are, are therefore utterly bankrupt uh, political and ideological traditions. I don't. I mean, in fact, I, I, I draw upon Marxism uh, for this book uh, as much as I critique it. But I think, um, you know, part of the problem is that uh, the left, I think part of the problem is that the left has, has had a certain amnesia about this, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book to to uh to cure that historical amnesia i think capital r romanticism has been a part of the left uh in the past and i think uh if it's going to be you know sitting at the table uh for any discussion we have to remember that so i you know this this book is not just a an account of capitalism as enchantment it's also there's also running through it um a a a counter narrative about, I guess in many ways, a counter-narrative about the left. What is, I want to touch on these two things before we let you go, what is project, Mm -hmm. or progress? What is progress if not 
as you point out, the next new iteration of one of our current gadgets or platforms. How should we be looking at progress as not just the next gadget? Well, I think we should think about progress in terms of human flourishing uh, rather than simply the gross domestic product. Um, and I think if we made human flourishing and I think if we made uh, workers control over production and care as our measures of progress, then I think we get we wouldn't in fact get a different kind of technical development. I think we'd get a different kind of uh, I think we'd get a different kind of politics. Uh, I think we'd get better and more generous measures of of, of justice and community. Um, so I think, you know, part of our part of the way that we've been taught, at least, to to define and measure progress has been sheerly numerical, right? I mean, we have more things. They're quicker, and they're all quantitative. What I'm asking for is, or, or, or showing that here, there has always been a more qualitative criterion for, uh, for progress. You know, there's a distinction that Ruskin made, which, um, which I've always found just invaluable between wealth and what he called ilth. You know, wealth is, is uh, production and care that actually enhances human relationships and enhances human beings. Whereas ilf is what destroys them or injures them. And that, I think, is a better criterion for progress than, you know, the GDP or, you know, how, how quickly your computer starts up or, you know, how many newfangled uh, bells and whistles do I have on my computer or my, or my iPhone. Yeah, I love that concept of ilth. And you also write that under the regime of neoliberalism, realism has been the chief weapon in the arsenal of what a past guest on our show, David Graeber, has characterized as a war on the imagination or a relentless assault on our capacity to envision an end to the despotism of money. What are we told that is outside the realm of realism, but in your opinion is very much within realism? Basically a decent life. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I think Graeber is absolutely right about is that one of the projects of neoliberalism has basically been to tell people, yeah, life kind of sucks under under neoliberal capitalism, but this is as good as it can get. Um, and so therefore, don't even think about, you know, working less, uh, you know, don't even think about uh, redistribution of wealth. Don't even think about any of those things, right? So I think war on the imagination is a perfect description of, of a big part of neoliberalism over the last 50 years. Um, and I think what you're starting to see, uh, if, there's, if there's anything good that comes out of this, these quarantines and lockdowns, it's, it's, we, we, I think we realize more than ever how much we need each other. And I think that one one of the hopes that comes up, that that might come out of this pandemic is you know look why does life why does life suck so much uh, and and one of the reasons is because we're told that we can't do any better because you know shareholder value because of a loss of hope you know uh, one last question for yeah. you Eugene 
Uh, historian Eugene McCarriher is author of The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. He's Associate Professor of Humanities at Villanova University and also the author of Christian Critics, Religion and the Impasse in Modern American Social Thought. The final question we ask each and every one of our guests, I promise it, promise it's not just you, Eugene, is the question <laughs> from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Eugene, how dependent are we on the misenchantment of money for our very survival? Must we believe in money? Must we believe in the faith of mammonism? And if we do not believe, money will punish us by going away, leaving us for dead like many fear from a deity abandoning them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have to believe in it in the sense that we have to use it every day, right? We're trapped. We're enslaved. And so um, it, to that extent, there's no way out. You know, I have to buy things. You have to buy things, which means, which means we have to, at least to some degree and in some fashion, accept the evaluation of reality in terms of money. Right. I mean, that's that's simply a, a given. But to the extent I think that we become aware of this. Right. To the extent that we become aware, uh, not just that this is false, but uh, we become aware of the way to which this is disfiguring and uh, poisoning our relationships with each other. To that extent, I think that we can live outside it in a kind of ironic mode. But I don't want us to simply be ironous. You know, I, I, I want us to seek opportunities to actually try to dismantle and transcend this system. So we're, yeah, I mean, I agree. We're trapped in hell. Uh, but I think that there are ways to think and possibly struggle our way out of it. Eugene, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fascinating book because it offers a perspective that I don't think anybody else is really offering at this time. I know people have in the past. You give a lot of historical context in the writing of this mm-hmm. in the past. But still, I think that this is just a fascinating work. And I cannot thank you enough for being mm-hmm. on our thank show you. this week. Thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. All right, so in the future, when you have a new version of the book out or more writing, we'll be annoying you. Okay, (laughs) sure. Annoy me. All right, take care, Eugene. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question mail is, what are you bringing to the autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell by messaging it to us via Facebook or Twitter or emailing it to us. And on Thursday, we'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Right after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. Alex, we're against the clock, so you want to just give some answers tomorrow, push them off till tomorrow, or you want to give some right now? Yeah, I'll do some now. All right. This week's question from hell is, what are you bringing to the autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Fabio L says, D&D books and dice. <laughs> if I'm going to LARP the revolution, I'm going to do it according to rules as written. Oh, Gary Gygax, will you ever learn? John M says, a compass. And Jurass says, Shake Shack for everyone. <laughs> Ugh. No, S says, a t-shirt that says, snacks is praxis. What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Karen R says, pony rides and dancing bears. Maybe a band. Warren L says, my Paris Commune t-shirt. Benjamin S says, ideological baggage. (laughs) What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Stephen S says, Chinese finance capital. Lisa MP says, badly needed sorting and organizational skills. (laughs) 
<laughs> Doesn't sound very horizontal of you, Lisa. Uh, Aaron B says gifts. Dan O says what I bring everywhere else. A persistent sense of personal inadequacy. <laughs> Scott L says an eyedropper of LSD for all the cool guys, gals, and non-binary pals, of course. Or, or Wally R says my dead car battery. Oh wait, never mind. And that is the one auto zone joke we're letting on the air this week. Zach N says the MFing ruckus. What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Nick A says one terabyte of the dankest memes. Daniel Z says the Dharma. Benjamin C says an etch a sketch. And Lisa B says a wheelbarrow filled with Soros money. Yep, <laughs> sweet. Oh, I was gonna say a horrible joke there. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show streaming at 10 a.m. in the morning, just like today's show? Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg will be on to talk about their cosmonaut essay, Mask Off, Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic. Uh, Mask Off, i got to remember that. Yeah, I think you sent it to me, though, already. Uh, and do we have a guest for Thursday yet? No, i got to talk to you about that after the show. Uh, but Jeff Dorchin will be delivering his moment of truth at the end of the show on Thursday. Make sure that you get your answers to the question from hell. Get them into us by the end of show Thursday so you still so you have an opportunity to win. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing, and thanks to our guest, Eugene McGarraher. Eugene, I had it right the whole time, McGarraher. I kept wanting to say McGarraher for some reason. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>